Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. I'm Mimi Sheraton, and my latest book is 1,000 Foods to Eat Before You Die. You are one of the world's foremost experts on food, and among many other things, the first female restaurant critic at the New York Times. 1,000 Foods to Eat Before You Die includes 70 world cuisines and took you 10 years to compile. Talk a little bit about the process. Well, uh, the process turned out to be far more difficult than I imagined, which is par for the course, I think. Um, I knew about the book, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, and I loved it. And so I contacted Workman, the publisher of that book, and suggested this one, A Thousand Foods to Eat Before You Die, and they loved it. And we began, and uh, the delivery date in the contract was two years, and it took ten because while I had no problem deciding what to put in, it was the writing was part of the problem, but also finding sources for everything in the book. One way or another, there is a source for every item in the book. And that took a lot of time. And as the time went on, earlier sources died out and we had to get new ones. And also, I had to substitute some things just for the sake of balance. I mean, I probably could have done a thousand foods to eat in France or Italy or the United States, but I wanted the countries in Africa that had such great specialties and products and the Middle East and South America. So it is totally worldwide, and there was that constant balancing and trying to write without being too repetitious and so on. Uh, so that's, that's how something takes 10 years. <laughs> Every single item is sourced. How do you keep the sources current? Are you constantly updating them? Well, as we get ready for a new printing, which has happened already once, uh, anything, I, I, I don't go through the whole book, but anything I've heard of that closed or changed and so on, I find a new source for. Does every entry have a special meaning to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Highly, highly personal, highly opinionated choices, uh, sometimes sounding a bit bizarre, a bit (laughs) exotic. And there are even some things I have in there that I consider as being terrible, but much loved wherever they were eaten. And part of the uh, purpose of the book is to develop an understanding in other people's tastes and cuisines and way of life. I think that should be a a rewarding part of reading the book, because most of all, as a writer, I hope it's a good read, and that there is a lot of serendipitous information that people will enjoy knowing. I also hope that it serves as a guide for travelers, because it is divided by countries, And if one is going to a country, it's a good idea to check this book to see that there are restaurant names in it, there are dishes in it, there are ingredients in it that, for the most part, can only be had in the particular place known for them. So I I do think it's a quasi-food and travel book. The first two foods you jotted down for this book were a frozen Milky Way bar, and caviar. That's quite a range. Well, that's the range in the book. 
not everything wonderful is expensive or rare. So I think that level of appreciation is is good. But I also think, you know, if Valentine's Day is on everybody's mind, it would be fun for a couple to go through this book together and check off who has had what and try to fill in the blanks. I think it would be a, a very nice joint effort for people because um, it's important that people who are going to get along eat well together. You never want to fight over a restaurant. No, and you never (laughs) want to be, if you're a food lover, I don't really think you want to be tied up for life with someone who really doesn't care about it. I've heard you say that this book is an overall view of what the world eats. What's one dish that you find exciting right now? Well, one dish that's sweeping around that I love is shakshuka which is a North African-Israeli dish of eggs baked in a very pungent tomato sauce. And we have several places in New York doing it, and I'm beginning to see riffs on it all over the place. Um, I'm always excited about linguine with white clam sauce, and it's getting harder and harder to find it in its original classic simplicity. So I'm always on the search for the old taste, And um, I suppose caviar is still exciting (laughs) to me. I I like so many things, it's difficult to pick one. But I would say not only shakshuka, but the cuisine developed around it, which is North African, um, Jewish, North African, Israeli. And that is more or less a complement to the Mediterranean cuisine we have known from Spain and Italy and Greece, the other side of the Mediterranean has many similar dishes, but the spicing is a little richer, a little more complex. I describe it by oversimplification, saying the um, eastern part of the Mediterranean uh, food is seasoned with spices, whereas the western side is more likely to be fresh herbs. And that that is an oversimplification, but it does define, I think, a desire for a, a heftier taste experience. But the ingredients are almost identical, you know, eggplant, tomatoes, garlic, onions, um, peppers, uh, all of those lovely good things. And shakshuka appears, by the way, in many forms on the Western side, most especially in Spain, where um, they do the the eggs and tomato sauce as well. It's so good. Yeah. With toasted pita. Yes. There's a wonderful place in the village for it, Meme. I don't know if you've been there. On Hudson, um, uh-huh. Yeah. And they do, I think, the best shakshuka in the city and also wonderful meze. They're... Um, Tabula and baba ganoush and those things are really delicious, as is their chicken tagine, which is something I'm inclined to get there in the evening when they do not do shakshuka. Have you started to like kale? (laughs) Not really, unless it's cooked. Unless it's cooked the very old way, as I described in that article I wrote for the Daily Beast, for which I am a columnist, by the way. And um, in the old way, kale is cooked very, very soft and usually with some kind of grease or fat. 
In the in Italy, it would be olive oil and garlic. In the deep south of this country, it would be ham hocks or pork belly. Uh, in China, it would be a different kind of oil and and garlic. And of course, the one really good kale dish is the Portuguese soup. Uh, Caldo Verde, which is uh, kale and potatoes and sausages and onions cooked down to the most silky softness imaginable with very rich flavor. I think what's happening with kale now is abominations, raw, hard, bitter, dry. Uh, I don't think that the current inventions um, take into account the inherent qualities of kale itself. I know. So That's I why I'm not going to eat any left. kale in 2017. <laughs> it was so big last year, I'm not eating it this year. <laughs> yeah, well, the, it'll year. be replaced soon by some other vegetable they're going to ruin. But. <laughs> <laughs> so talk a little bit about your love of research, starting with the Four Seasons. Well, for the four seasons, of course, I was a consultant to the original team on menu and product research. That was what I did uh, when they were creating that restaurant. Uh, and in the process of, of my working with them and seeing how a restaurant is put together, I began to know how to take it apart as a critic uh, all the elements that go into it, all of the planning, all of the evaluating, every ingredient, every um, uh, step is a choice. And how much attention is paid to choice and what is the focus of that attention, whether it's only profit, whether it's also uh, diner comfort, these are all of the elements that have to work against each other for a result. As the restaurant critic for the New York Times, how did you avoid being recognized? Well, I'm sure after several years I was. But before, when I started, I was not really known to many restaurants, maybe, you know, a few in the village. By the way, I've lived in the village for 72 years. So eventually wow. <laughs> a few people in the village <laughs> know who I am. Uh, I had three wigs. And I had many pairs of eyeglasses. Uh, I don't wear eyeglasses, but, you know, they had fake glass, not real lenses. And the fact that no one expected to see glasses on my face, and I had three distinctly different wigs, worked for a very, very long time. Uh, certainly for, I would say, four of the eight years I did it. And then it kept on working in many less sophisticated restaurants that were not attuned to the idea of a critic coming in. I think one of my great triumphs as a critic, and one of which I have just written about for the Daily Beast, was Reos, where they didn't know anything about critics. Frank Pellegrino, who unfortunately yeah. died last week, um, spoke at a birthday party for me, and he said, we didn't know what a restaurant review was. We only read the New York Daily News, and we had no idea what hit us when the review came out. They had no idea who I was, you know, and I did the usual three visits. And, um, uh, you know, later on, very sophisticated uh, places, especially if they had PR people or a captain who had known me in one restaurant recognized me when he moved to another. 
uh, it was they also began to recognize my husband who would not wear disguises and <laughs> friends never told and also because the name Mimi is not too usual and sort of resonates when it's said no one was allowed to call me Mimi at the table I had names like Claire and Louise <laughs> and there were a few Mimi sayers who could not stop saying Mimi and they were never asked out again to <laughs> to to dine with us so uh, that that was, and I never went any place where I expected to see a restaurateur, a chef, or anyone who did PR for them. If I were invited to a private party, I would always ask if one of those would be there, and I wouldn't go, including a great Christmas party given by a close friend of mine on the paper who was friendly with the owners of uh, the Russian Tea Room and Elaine's. And press agents, because, you know, food was not her bailiwick, and it was fine for her, but I would never go to the parties. I, partly because I didn't want them to know what I looked like, but also I felt it would be awkward being friendly and sociable to someone whom you might have to uh, kill in a review. <laughs> I've noticed that Pete Wells, Adam Platt, and Jonathan Gold have totally given up on the anonymity. I think it's too bad because anyone who says it doesn't make a difference doesn't know what he or she is talking about. But I think in this age of Instagram and selfies and and the Internet, I think it's very, very difficult to uh, maintain anonymity. But no one can tell me that it doesn't make a difference. And I once wrote an article about that uh, for Vanity Fair on what a restaurant can do when a critic appears unexpectedly. And there was so much they could do to the food that I knew. And after the article appeared, um, a, a very good restaurateur no longer alive in New York, Adi Giovanetti, who had a restaurant called Il Nido, called me and at the paper and uh, at um, at the paper and said signora we can do a lot more than that if you order an appetizer we have plenty of time to fix the main course wow. and he went on and on so anyone who tells me it doesn't make a difference uh i i have often said is a fool or a liar <laughs> but a fool because he or she doesn't know what can be done with food, a liar because that's the only way they can do it and they have to. But I do believe Jonathan and Pete and, and anyone else working now can do it no other way. And it's a loss. It's a great loss in a review. Alex Stupak of MPON here on West 10th and West 4th tweeted out the statement, quote, people ask why and how a restaurant closed. If you were really a supporter and there were enough of you, it wouldn't have, end quote. Now, I personally feel like restaurants close in our neighborhood and in New York City due to crazy rent hikes. What do you think? I think you're right. Rent hikes and now um, uh, the new minimum wage law is going to be very hurtful for them, although that's too bad because people should work for decent wages and the rising costs of food, and many places are being closed. As for what Stupak said, 
I, I feel that, that he is right, and yet how often does one have to go to one restaurant to say that one of my great favorites is closing at the end of spring, which is Anissa in oh, the no. restaurant. Yes, and uh, when I, I moan about it and I'm sad about it and I say to myself, where did you go last? And I can't even remember when I went there last. The problem is, especially for me and maybe other writers, you want to see new places. And there are so many new places and there's just so much money you're going to spend. So you tend to go to a lot of new places and go back. And then you always mean, in fact, I'm going to Anissa this coming Sunday. Um, and, you know, even the Carnegie Deli, it was one of my great, great favorites. Yeah. It closed. And then I said to myself, you know, I haven't been there for two years. And uh, how often would I have to go to save the Carnegie Deli? I mean, right. it's, it's a funny notion. What you keep needing is new people to come. And, you know, geography has uh, an influence, a location. Um, a funny thing about <clears throat> Anissa and a few other places, when you think of going out for dinner and trying to pick, you sort of think in an area, and although it didn't hurt her for many years, that particular street in Greenwich Village is not one that pops into my memory. That's, that's a funny thing to say, but it's true. There's another street in New York, 59th between 5th and Madison, that has had res good restaurants come and go. And somehow I did, that street never pops up in my mind when huh. I think of where to go. So, But, you know, what a restaurant has to do is keep making news so that people like me and others feel they have to keep going back. And I guess it's hard to keep making news, not only because if it entails hiring a public relations person, that's very, very expensive, and you would have to sell a lot of dinners to just to break even on that. So um, I did um, a piece for the Daily Beast on my favorite new New York restaurants in 2016, and one of them was Fowler & Wells, which is Tom Colicchio's uh, new restaurant downtown. And he said to me, soon it will be impossible for new restaurants to, in New York to open on the street level. They may have to go to the second or third floor where the rents will be much cheaper. Oh, that's a shame. And he, he closed Colicchio and Sons, but he opened up in um, downtown because it's in a hotel and he doesn't have a rent problem if he's in a hotel. So, um, you know, there, there's a changing uh, dynamic going on. Uh, less formal restaurants that do away with certain costs, a, a format um, pioneered by David Chang. But how many people, you know, want to eat on stools and eat without reservations and so on? Uh, they'd be the younger people. Um, so we have to see how it plays out, but still, restaurants are opening right and left. I mean, if you haven't been to Loring Place on 8th Street between 5th and 6th, you're missing a great new restaurant, a very big space by Dan Kluger, who was so excellent at ABC Kitchen and is already excellent in his new place. I mean, I don't remember a year... I've been reviewing restaurants in New York for 60 years, exactly, starting with The Village Voice, Q Magazine, and on and on. 
and I never remember so many new, new restaurants opening within one year. I went to 21 for the story I did for the Daily Beast, and I read the uh, picks of other critics, and not only were there many I never got to, but there were many I never even heard of. <laughs> so it, it's been a crazy, crazy year, and it's hard to believe that everyone's cruising for a bruising, but uh, we, we have to watch what goes on. I mean, some very expensive white tablecloth restaurants have opened. Augustine and uh, um, Le, Le Coucou, which is, you know, clearly the restaurant of the year, and Le Coq Rico. And, I mean, all of these are solid table and chair restaurants, big tickets. So we'll have to see how it plays out. But being uh, obsessive about restaurants, for me, it's a, it's a game, it's a challenge, it's uh, something I never get tired of watching. On page 569, you've included one of my favorite restaurants in New York City, the Grand Central Oyster Bar and Restaurant. I adore, Mine too. I adore the architecture and the vibe and the caviar sandwich. It's an iconic gem. That restaurant I've is just I've never amazing. had it. Well, I've never had it. <gasps> I always eat oyster stew and chowder and fish. What is the caviar sandwich? You've I'm never go. had it? It's white. No, I think I may, as soon as we hang up, I yeah. may go over. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? It's toasted white bread. It's um, hard-boiled eggs and caviar. What kind of caviar? Oh. Black? black it's black. Bread? It's black. Black. And do they say what kind it is? No. It, they just call it the and, caviar sandwich. And what do they charge? Do you know? I think it's $12. I assure you it's not triple O beluga. No. <laughs> but it's darn good. That's $12 a grain. <laughs> <laughs> I have three rapid-fire village questions for you. Florence Meat Market or Ottomanelli's? Florence. Far and away. Really? I mean, unless I want game that's there right away, but I feel Florence being smaller is much more personal, much more dedicated, uh, certainly less expensive as far as I know. Uh, they're very reasonable. It's a totally different atmosphere. However, if I wanted a pheasant, uh, I would not go to Florence unless I knew well in advance and they would order it for me. But I would go into Autumn Manelli because they, in my mind, are known uh, primarily for game. And I have shopped in Autumn Manelli many times, but I've never felt any attempt to, for them to make a personal contact. It's always been very, very cold, very, very quick, and I'm sorry to say very unaccommodating. Maybe if they knew me as a regular, that would not be, but there is nothing about their initial demeanor that indicates um, I would want to be a regular. Florence is a jewel. Abingdon Square Green Market or Union Square? Oh, Union Square. I mean, I go to Abingdon much more often. I'm at Abingdon every week. I'm at Union Square maybe once a month, maybe not even in this weather, but there's no comparison in terms of choice. 
the variety is necessarily limited at Abingdon Square, uh, but at um, Union Square, there's so much more variety of choice and quite often lower prices because of that fact. East Village Cheese Shop or Murray's? Murray's by all and, and only on days when their marvelous salesman Cielo is there. He's not there Sunday, but I believe that's the only day he's not there. But all of the people behind the cheese counter know what they're talking about. They give you samples to taste, and it's much closer to me than East Village. Uh, so that alone would make a difference. But um, uh, I think Murray's is the best cheese store in the city. This book is the perfect Valentine's Day present for the food lovers in your life. What a pleasure it was chatting with you. Thanks for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Susie. I enjoyed speaking with you.